0: Good morning. It's good to be with you. Lauren and I were uh, blessed to spend last week with the girls in angel fire and sledding and tubing. And none of us got hurt, so we're really thankful for that. I I especially was concerned uh, that I might do something and have to be using crutches this morning. But it was good. I hope your spring break was a blessing. I hope it was at least a break of some kind, even if you didn't get to go anywhere. Uh, But it's always a homecoming on Sunday mornings, uh, and a blessing to be able to come to this place, as Keith talked about, where none of us, as much as we might want, um, none of us has veto power, that that rests with God and with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the thing about them is they almost always, always want welcome to be the way that people encounter transformation. Welcome, Uh, not lecture, not threat, but welcome. And the question is, do we really trust that that's how change happens? So for the past couple of of months, we have been traveling together through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the kinds of of good people that we are created to be who live good lives. And, And by that, we don't just mean lives that are enjoyable for us or filled with blessings for us, but lives that are truly good, good for us and other people who we share relationships with. And one of the things that gets in the way of relationships is judgment. And while none of us really wake up in the morning wanting to judge other people, it seems that all it takes is one other person that we encounter early in the morning for us to find that we are making judgments about them. And while we may think that we can keep those judgments hidden from that other person, it seems to me that I know when you're judging me. And you know when I'm judging you. And it starts to create space between us. A space where distrust and misunderstanding start to creep in. And before we know it, not only are we struggling to understand one another, but we're struggling to to care about the other person. To see the other person as somebody who is a a dearly loved child of God. Growing up with... uh, with two little girls in my house, growing up as a parent, I have found that I don't usually get to choose what's on our television. And one of the things I find myself often doing is sitting through a, a movie that's animated and the main character is a young woman. And, and she's finding out who she is or she's, she's being called into a journey or a quest. And I don't always watch these movies with my full attention. Because I'm mainly sitting there on the couch with Riley or Reese, and I just want to spend time with them. And they want to watch this movie, so I kind of halfway watch it together with them. When when Riley was four, one of her favorite movies that we watched over and over and over again was called Brave. Which was ironic because there were a couple of scary bears in it, and Riley wasn't actually brave enough to watch Brave (laughs) without hiding behind me. And if you're hiding behind me to keep you safe... You don't have a lot of choices, right? And so we, we would watch this movie. I would halfway watch it. And, but, but that's all it would take for me to start to notice that the theme because it's, it's, you, you can't miss it. It's mainly a movie that's about this teenage daughter and her mother and the tension that starts to grow between them as she becomes her own young woman. And what basically you start to realize is that this movie's trying to say look we all have people in our lives whom we love very much that we would we would give anything to magically change but what actually needs to change is how we see them and what would always happen is Riley would be watching this movie with me, she'd be hiding behind me for the few scary parts, and then the movie would end and she'd go off and play, and I would be, this is my problem with watching movies, I'm lost in reflection on the couch from this Disney movie. Right? Wrestling with my own life, and all the times, all the, the conversations, all of the interactions I had with with my parents and my sisters and my brother and lifelong friends where for one reason or another there was tension between us. Something had taken place and through anger and frustration I had said something. I had, I had done something that I thought would force them to magically change. To fix whatever it was that I thought was wrong with them. And, and I would think about all of those interactions and start to weigh how often did those kinds of frustrated angry moments actually work. I mean, they worked, but they didn't work to change that other person. They changed our relationship, but not in a good way. Jesus knows this about us, that we look at other people and we notice what's what's wrong with them or something that we think is wrong with them. We notice what's broken in them or something that we think isn't quite right in them, and we immediately pass judgment. And then once we've passed judgment in our hearts, we have this tendency to let it out, to say something. And usually, not to say it in the most compassionate way, and and usually not to say it actually completely for that other person, but usually because whatever it is that that we see in them that's broken or not quite right is really annoying us, or frustrating us, or complicating things for us, and so we reduce someone who should be a full-bodied person in our lives to a simple black-and-white problem. And we know how, how to fix it. So we roll up our sleeves and we try to fix it. We try to fix them and we find that we break things even more. And so Jesus talks about this tendency we have. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 1. He's very direct. Don't judge. So you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt out to you. Why do you see the splinter that's in your brother's or sister's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, "Here, here, let me take that splinter out of your eye" when there's a log in your eye? You deceive yourself. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's or sister's eye. Don't give holy things to dogs, and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will stomp on, your, on the pearls, and they'll turn around and attack you. Ask, and you will receive. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door is opened. Who among you will give your children a stone when they ask for bread, or give them a snake when they ask for fish? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, you should treat people in the same way that you want people to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. Now, it's clear from the start that Jesus is trying to get us to take ourselves less seriously. He's trying to get us to laugh at ourselves with a ridiculous image. It's this person, well-intentioned, who's trying to remove a small splinter from somebody else while they've got a downed telephone pole across their back, actually coming out of their head, right? You're supposed to laugh at the ridiculousness of that image because it's exactly what Jesus thinks we're doing without knowing it. That if we saw it for what it was, we would laugh about it and we would stop, We would act differently. We would interact differently with the people in our lives that we think we're trying to help. That the eyes of our hearts determine far more of what we see than the eyes that we have in our heads. This is something that is repeated over and over in scripture. That your spiritual eyes are more powerful to you than your physical eyes. That that you need to see the truth and you see that with your spirit, with your heart, with your soul. And Jesus says that the thing you've got to be careful with is that when it comes to your spiritual eyes, you don't have 20 vision. You want to pretend you do, but you don't. You, you see things as you believe them to be, and yet you've got to have the humility to know that it's, it's you who's seeing those things, and you're not perfect. You're not standing in a perfect place. And you certainly don't have perfect understanding. And so you look out at the world, you look out at other people, and you see them, but you don't see the whole truth about them. That this side of heaven you'll never see the whole truth about them. C.S. Lewis says at one point that, that this is somewhat a mixed blessing because if we were able to see everyone else the way they truly are, we would see the glory and the goodness that God has given them and it would be so beautiful and so overwhelming we would be tempted to fall down and worship. That's how beautiful people's souls are when we see them the way they're supposed to be seen, when we see them the way Jesus always sees them, the way Jesus always sees you, the way Jesus always sees me. This person of limitless value this person of unexpected goodness, this person whose life is defined not through their performance or through their success or even through their failures, but a life that is defined simply because God says, I love you enough to send my own son to give his life for you. That's how much every single person you will ever encounter is worth. And yet I don't, I don't believe that we always see that truth. In fact, not only do we not see that truth, I think there are times that you and I do things to cover up that truth from ourselves. And one of the ways we do that is by not looking, by not seeing all that we could see if we would take the time. If, if we would allow God to lead us in how we view other people. And there are times that I'm pretty convinced that the splinter that you and I see in someone else's life, actually, if we trace it back, it comes from that rough wooden beam we're dragging through our life. There are many times that if it's a family member or if it's a friend, if it's somebody you know well, well, not only does that give you an advantage to see all of their faults and all of their mistakes and all the places they've messed up. In other words, not only do you know where all their splinters are, some of those splinters belong to you. And the question is, how are we going to not only tell that truth about ourselves and about that other person, but how are we going to let that truth shape how we treat them, shape how we interact with them? I don't know why we're this way. I don't know what it is about us that causes us to be more tempted to compare ourselves to somebody else than to encounter them. and all of their fullness... And and the things that make them amazing and beautiful, and the things that they're struggling with, the things that they want to hide because they're embarrassed by. I don't know what it is that that leads us to be people who often are more tempted to to compete with other people than to care for them. Now, I'm sure people have written books on it, but there's no way that they fully understood all the reasons for why we tend to be so self-focused and self-interested it's all depressingly predictable, and it's the way it is. And I think it's the beginning place. It's, it's the admission. It's the confession that you and I have to make, that, that for whatever reasons, you and I, we tend to compete and compare, and once we've kind of gotten good at competing and comparing, we graduate to condemning. Right, because it's not enough after a while to just compare and compete. At some point, we have to decide we're better than somebody that we're looking at, somebody that we're living with. We do that first in our hearts, and then eventually it, it finds its way out of our hearts into our words and into our actions. We condemn people, people who are different from us, people who disagree with us, people who have different value systems than we do. And the short of it is, at some point, we, we just get to the place where we're really good at condemning people who are broken in ways that are different from our own brokenness. Right, we, we, we don't want to talk about our brokenness. We don't want to focus on that. We don't want anyone else to, to see that, but we're, we're really good at condemning people who are broken in ways that we don't relate to. When Jesus tells us to not judge, he he isn't exactly telling us to, to pretend we don't see what's wrong. He's, he's not asking us to suspend our logic. He's, he's not saying that you and I can get to a place where we never notice the bad in another person. There are times in Jesus' life and ministry, if, if you've studied the Bible much, if you've read the Gospels, you know this. Jesus himself separates groups of people at times when he's talking about them. He'll say that there are people who are serious about following him and his example, and then there are pretenders, there are hypocrites. Right? He sees and declares that there's a difference between people. He makes a judgment call. I, I don't think Jesus is saying that you're supposed to get to the place where you don't notice the differences between people, where you never make any kind of judgment call. He's, he's not asking you to close your eyes when you try to really see me. The good and the bad, the hopes and the fears, the places where I'm healed and the places where I'm still broken. It's impossible for you and I to to reach a place where we never have a judgmental thought about another person, but it is possible for us to decide very carefully what we do when we see something in someone else that we realize is less than good. We can't stop what we notice. We 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 can't stop what we think. But we can immediately, when we notice and when we have that thought, we can decide what we're going to do with what we've seen and what we're thinking. And and we can make some decisions about how to lovingly interact with somebody that we are tempted to criticize through clenched teeth. You and I are all too prepared to rush towards someone else with condemnation in our hearts to fix them. And I want to think about, I, I want you to think about rather, in your life, When you've actually changed the most, my guess is it's not because somebody pointed out to you angrily what you needed to change. Now, I'm sure you've had that experience, but my guess is that when somebody angrily points out to you what you need to change, your first thing is to look for a splinter in the person who's talking to you. You're hoping to find a telephone pole. And then you're going to take it from them, and you're going to beat them with it. <laughs> right? The, the most common response that I hear when somebody points out someone else's fault is, well, you're not perfect. I mean, that, that defense mechanism just comes up automatically. That Who are you to start telling me about something in my life I need to change? And if you're family, you've got long, long lists, that you can use, things from 20 years ago, right, that, that you bring up and say, yeah, well, at least I've never. Now, here's my question. That may feel good in the moment, but who in the end of that, kind of that kind of verbal fight, who's changed by that? Who's made better by that kind of interaction? Jesus says that that doesn't happen. Now, what he wants us to understand, I think, from the very beginning is, The best way for you to see somebody else as clearly as possible, to see the not so good but also the good and their broken places but also the the places where they've been healed, That the best way for you to see them most clearly is to start by trying to see yourself as clearly as possible. To see your own heart and your own motives, your thoughts, your actions, your, your hidden habits and your outward behaviors, your, your secret shortcomings that you think nobody else knows about, and your obvious mistakes that you just rather not think about. We aren't ever going to see other people in their fullness, in their complexity, in the good and the bad, unless we've first taken the time to reflect on who we really are in relationship to them and to everybody else. I mean, all it takes is ten quiet moments. Minutes of honest reflection for us to start to understand we don't need anyone else to point out that we're not perfect. We know we're not perfect. We know we have things in our lives that shouldn't be in our lives. We know we have struggles we need help overcoming. It it just takes 10 minutes of being quiet for those kinds of realities to start to, to become clear to us. Here's what I found though in our culture we run from reflection. We, we run from it. I, I have never in my life been aware of a culture that actively tries to live distracted than ours. We don't even want to have two and a half minutes of reflection when we have to stand in line somewhere. The second we find ourselves in a quiet place, we have a thousand things we can turn on and look at and pay attention to and read or listen to so we don't have to listen to our hearts. That bill will come due. That bill is coming due in our world, right? Where nobody really listens to their hearts. And if you don't ever listen to your heart, my guess is you're not very skilled, you're not experienced at listening to God's heart. And if you're not careful, you can start to think that when you listen to your heart, it's the same exact thing as listening to God's heart. And that's a dangerous place to be. It starts by trying to see yourself clearly now, that's not really going to help you much. There's a reason we run from reflection in our culture. It's because if I have to be quiet, and if I have to think about my life, and if I have to be honest about the things that are driving me, my motives, my decisions, and I have to say that a lot of those things not only are imperfect, but they're really mostly about me, and I may dress them up with language that seems like it's about you, but it's just mostly about me and what I want and how you can help me get what it is that I want. It's, that's ugly stuff to have to see about ourselves, right? And so, if in our reflection, that's that's where we go and where we stop, there's good reason you wouldn't want to go back to that place. That's not enough, and it's not the whole truth, right? If we're going to to go inward, if we're going to reflect, if we're going to try to listen to our hearts, then we at least need to do that with two major convictions, and it's this. We have to look inwardly, knowing that we're broken and that God loves us anyway, If those two truths aren't the foundation for your reflection, you're going to be shocked when you realize you're broken, which it shouldn't surprise you, and then when you find out you're broken, you're going to try to spin it, you're going to hide it, you're going to cover it up, you're going to decide maybe it's not a a, a thing that you need to worry about, a struggle that you need to overcome. Before you get quiet, before you start to, to see yourself clearly, you just need to know you're broken and God loves you anyway. And that's a really important thing because it's God's unconditional love that's the only thing that's strong enough to unbreak you. But here's, here's a second piece that Jesus is wanting us to reach in that time of contemplation and reflection. It's not just how we're supposed to see ourselves. It's how I'm supposed to see you. It's how you're supposed to see me. Everybody in your life, here's three things you can know they're broken, God loves them anyway, and God expects you to love them anyway. You don't need to waste time asking whether or not you should love somebody. We ought to be spending time figuring out how to love the people who are difficult to love. Not writing escape clauses, not becoming the very hypocrites that Jesus talks about in his ministry where he says, you know, you know how to look like you're following me, but you're finding ways to, to have that be an appearance thing. It's, it's only skin deep. You're not actually trying to follow me. Jesus says, we're broken, God loves us anyway, and if we're going to be Christ's followers, we automatically have to figure out how to love other people anyway. Because it's God's love and God's love alone that has the power to unbreak us. Not anything we come up with, not any idea we're going to have or strategy we're going to develop on our own. It is God's love and God's love alone Now, again, God is not asking us to ignore other people's shortcomings and and the things that we know about them that, that aren't quite right. He's asking us to see them through eyes of love so that when we notice something that's not quite right, when we notice something that's bad in somebody else, we stay there and we look long enough until we see not just the bad, but something that's more than bad, something that's better about them, something that that we can love in them, because I have found that if I'll take the time, if I'll really take the time to look long enough, I can find something in everyone I've ever met that's worth loving. And I got to admit, there's been times it's annoying to find that thing, in somebody else who just is frustrating or who I know doesn't like me or who doesn't trust me or who doesn't really want me in relationship with them. And yet I have found every single time in my life that if I'll look long enough, if I'll look intentionally through the eyes of God's love at somebody else, I'll find something in that person worth saving, worth cherishing. And I have also found that in those relationships that once I'm able to find that thing about them that's worth loving and cherishing, that that's the best chance I'm ever going to have in relationship with that person to get to be a part of God changing them. And it's never one thing I say, it's, it's never one thing I do, it's almost always simply that I have made the decision to stay in their life and then I am blessed to be a witness to watch the Holy Spirit start to change them. But it begins with how I see them, it begins with how I interact with them. Do you really believe that every single person you come across is God's dearly beloved child and that you have been called to help them experience that love? No matter how difficult, no matter how complicated. I mean, every single person in this world, we have to be able to believe this, right? That they deserve healing more than hating. That they deserve it, not because of anything they've done, but because God created them and, and wants us to treat each other that way, right? And so, as God's child, it's not really up for debate. They, they deserve to be healed more than hated. They deserve to be shown a little compassion more than given an inspection. I mean, who, who wants to be constantly under the microscope with somebody else in their life? Constantly falling short. It's demoralizing, it's depressing, and it's something that eventually we all give up on, and yet we're not allowed to give up on anybody, not ever. We need to be people who find a way to show others how they can live instead of attacking them because they're not already living that way, right? To show them a better way instead of insisting that they somehow never lose their way. Broken people don't need good advice thrown at them. They need a good example shown to them. Jesus makes this clear in one of the most evocative verses we just read. It's a verse that you're tempted to skip over in in the section we read. He says, don't throw your pearls to swine. They'll trample you. I think what he's saying is, look, people who are really broken don't have time for your advice. And if you try to toss advice at them thinking that your words alone are going to fix them, they're going to trample all over your words and they may just trample all over you. That's not what broken people need. They don't need good advice thrown at them. They need a good example shown to them. So live with them. Live beside them. Live for them. And do all of that before you ever start to think that you're going to have earned the right to open up your mouth and say something that they're going to listen to enough to actually be changed by. And I know, I know that's not what we want, we, we want to hear. We'd rather think that there's some perfect thing we can say to somebody and they're just going to snap out of it and they'll become who we know they should be. But Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. You can try it, but it doesn't work like that. And if you think back in your life, you know that he's telling us the truth. It doesn't work like that. The only time that advice has actually taken root in my life is when somebody is able to say it to me and I know as they speak to me that the only reason they're talking to me and telling me something that's difficult is because they love me. And they're probably going to have to tell me more than once. And they're going to have to forgive me when I mess up and then they're going to have to tell me again. I think you and I are way too impatient when it comes to transformation. Not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the other people that we know well. We want everything that we don't like about them to magically change. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. It's not magic. Transformation's not magic. It's the Holy Spirit and it's hard work and it's partnership. And it takes a lifetime. You and I, I think we want to find a shortcut, and yet Jesus is saying that there isn't a shortcut. So he gets us to this place where we're struggling to listen to him, right? Because we don't exactly want what he's selling when it comes to fixing the broken people in our life. So, So then he turns and he says words you've heard many times before, probably not only when you're listening to the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ask, seek, and knock. Now, I've heard many people talk about asking and seeking and knocking and the promise that Jesus gives to asking and seeking and knocking as if Jesus is talking about asking and seeking and knocking about anything and everything. And you'll automatically get what what you ask and you seek and you knock. But in context, it's pretty obvious what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about asking and seeking and knocking for just anything. He's saying what happens when you get to that place with somebody you love, where you see the splinter, you see the struggle, you see the brokenness, and you don't know what to do? Because you can't just throw advice at them. You've tried that, and it hasn't worked. In fact, they've thrown your own words back in your face. What do you do then? Well, then you pray. You ask, and you seek, and you knock. That's for anything. You're asking, and you're seeking, and you're knocking for an answer because you love somebody else, and you don't know what else to do. And when you ask and you seek and you knock for the sake of somebody else, God always answers that prayer in the affirmative. God always says yes. God always helps when you ask God, please give me the insight to help somebody else. Jesus promises us that when we ask and seek and knock for someone else's sake, God always gives us what we need. But it's hard. It's it's difficult. For years, I I watched as my parents kept being good to my younger sisters, Rachel and Jenny, as they made really bad choices. And not just once, but over and over and over again. And I distinctly remember telling my parents that, that they were crazy to keep trying to help my sisters because I was the older brother, both in my own life and in the parable of the lost brother, right, the lost son. I I was the older brother, and I was angry because I watched my parents keep hoping my sisters would come to their senses and see the light and come back to us and come back to their faith, back to God, back to church, and yet, over and over and over again they would set my parents up they'd do a little thing halfway decent and then they'd turn around and ruin it again and I I just kept getting so frustrated and I got to the place where I was not just seeing my sisters for who they were I I was really good at seeing all the things about my sisters that drove me crazy all the bad things and I got really good at listing them Paul knows what he's talking about when he says love sees no record of wrong, right? Keeps no record of wrong. I was keeping really detailed notes. And I kept having this fantasy conversation with my sisters where I would just talk about all the things that were wrong with him, and they would say, Jared, thank you so much for pointing all that out. We just didn't see it before. You're such a good brother. We'll be home, and it'll all be okay, but because that was never happening, instead, what I do is helpfully call my parents and berate them for being good to my sisters and list all the things that were wrong and say, not only are they being bad daughters, but I'm not sure that what you're doing is the best parenting. Because again, I'm just God's gift to my family, right? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <clears throat> And luckily enough, right, fortunately enough, my my parents knew better than to listen to me. And instead of giving up on my sisters, my parents, my dad, and my mom, every day, they were asking and they were seeking and they were knocking. Because they knew they needed divine guidance. And they knew they were searching for, for something to do that that they didn't know how to do and, and that they were looking for an opportunity and opening. Just, just the right moment. And I'm, I want you to know God answered their prayers. And it wasn't all at once the way that I would want it to be. It was a little bit, day by day, phone conversation after phone conversation, lunch after lunch that were strained and awkward and difficult, and yet my parents kept asking and seeking and knocking and asking and seeking and knocking. And God helped them help my sisters come back to their senses and come back home and come back to faith. It's it's not magic. We want it to be magic, but it's not. It's the Holy Spirit and it's Christ and it's God our Father working in us and through us and us being willing to partner. And we we have... We have many things we can do. It's not like we're helpless in this. It's not like we're supposed to be doing nothing. It's just that we're supposed to be always partnering with God, not trying to do this on our own and not trying to look at somebody else and reduce them to their problems and then try to solve those problems. It's that we believe that transformation takes place in the embrace of God's unconditional love, that it is only that love that's strong enough to unbreak us and all the people in our lives that we love. We see each other. We see the good and the bad. We see the things in other people that, that, we, that we understand. We see the things in them that we don't understand. And we make the decision to never give up. Because that's how God lives with us. And it's how he calls us to live with one another. It's impossible for us to, to reach a place where we never have a judgmental thought about another person. That's not the point. But it is possible for us to decide very carefully what we do when we see something in someone else that seems less than good. And when we see the bad, the weak, the the messed up places in somebody else, we have a choice. We can point out all the ways that that they need to change and, and get their acts pulled together. Or we can patiently start this journey of showing them how. We can criticize them or we can empathize with them. And it's hard to do both at the same time. It's, it's hard for us to both condemn, but then also step in and journey with them. So we have a choice to make. We have a decision that we need to reach. And I will tell you this. The people in your life who frustrate you because of their brokenness, they don't need your advice. They need you. They need you. They need Christ in you. They need to to know that even though you know that they're broken, that God loves them anyway and you love them anyway, and that's enough. That's a starting place. That they don't have to get their act all pulled together before you're going to start opening up your heart to them that they don't have to have everything figured out before they start to move their lives in the right direction. Jesus closes these words to us by reminding us that if we want to make everything as simple as possible when it comes to how we were created to live the good life and live it together, it's that we should treat other people the way we want to be treated. And of all the, the amazing things that Jesus manages to say and. And these chapters in Matthew, this Sermon on the Mount, the one that has really transcended Scripture itself, are the closing words of advice he gives to us here. Where he says, "Look, if you're wondering what you should do, if you're praying, if you're asking and seeking and knocking and 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 seeking out what it is that God wants you to do for somebody else, here's a here's a decent place to start. Just treat them the way you'd want to be treated." Now, again, in this context, I don't think that means just all the time in any way, although that works really well. I think what Jesus is specifically trying to say is, when you've messed up and you know it, how do you want somebody to treat you? When you're broken and you're struggling and you know it, how do you want somebody to treat you? How do you wish the story would go? Whatever it is that you'd want somebody to do for you, Do that for somebody else in your life who's struggling, who's broken, and who knows it, and who needs somebody to be the living expression of grace. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough for us to talk about grace and define grace and and describe grace and, and be experts in grace. We are created to be living expressions of grace that other people get to encounter. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. We don't do this because we're just that good. We do this because our heavenly father is that good and he has told us this is what it means to be his children. We're going to sing together now and as we do, we'll have some shepherds and their wives available for prayer and conversation just outside of these double doors. They're there to receive you, to talk with you, to be community to you. So if you have any reason at all that you'd like to talk with a Christian couple about our church, about your relationship to god about your relationship to other people they're there for you go to them as together we stand and sing